This is the second sermon in a four-part series on money that we're doing as part of Epiphany. Epiphany is uh, the, the part of the church calendar that comes right after Christmas. And it's a time that we focus on the teachings of Jesus to the world. And since Jesus talked about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God, that's why we're choosing to do two series, one on the kingdom, one on money, over Epiphany. So last week, Alistair walked us through the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus with a question. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question, I think. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. And the rich young man affirmed that he had kept all of these from his youth. But then Jesus said something that the young man wasn't prepared to hear. He said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the rich young man heard this, he was devastated because the text says he was extremely rich. He wasn't prepared to do what Jesus asked of him. He wasn't prepared for what it was going to cost him to follow Jesus. Well, with that little introduction, we arrive at our text for today because these texts follow right on the heels of that encounter with the rich young man. In our text, we have two encounters. We have one with a blind man who Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us his name is Bartimaeus. And we also have the encounter with the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Now, the reason we've chosen these texts is because last week the rich young ruler showed us what repentance doesn't look like. But these texts, I think, show us what repentance does look like. They show us what it costs someone to repent and to follow Jesus. So I want to walk through the sermon in two ways. I want to look first at Bartimaeus and what this is costing Bartimaeus to follow Jesus. And then I want to look at what repentance is going to cost Zacchaeus. Now, I keep using this word repentance, and this might seem like a strange word to use in the context of of Bartimaeus especially, because it carries a lot of meaning in our culture. Um, For some people, repentance means a kind of guilt, a kind of feeling really sorry about the stuff that I've done or that I haven't done. And that's certainly part of repentance, this kind of inner sense that something has gone wrong. But it's not ultimately what repentance means. Repentance at its most basic is a turning away from something and a turning towards something else. It's a reorientation of my entire life away from something over here and towards something over here. It's it's kind of that simple. So let let me give you an example of what repentance looks like. If I happen to fall into the habit of stealing rubber chickens from Dollarama, okay, feeling guilty about it is not repentance, okay? Repentance also means changing my behavior and stopping my rubber chicken stealing ways. Now that doesn't mean I will never steal another rubber chicken again because I quite like rubber chickens. And I very well might end up back at Dollarama and just pick one up and shove it in my jacket. We easily fall into habits of stealing things. Yes, this is ridiculous, I know, okay. We easily fall into habits and it's really difficult to break them. So repentance isn't simply a one-time event either. Repentance is a constant turning away from something and a turning towards something else. Now, obviously, that's kind of a ridiculous example of repentance. But you, you get the idea. Repentance is not simply a feeling. It is also a turning away from something and towards something else. And this is the kind of repentance that we're seeing in the two encounters that we have this morning. Repentance in these instances is extremely costly to these two men. So let's look first at Bartimaeus. So if you've got a Bible, hopefully you do, or if it's on your phone, if you like that kind of people, open up to Luke 18.35, where we started. 
Luke's account begins with Bartimaeus sitting on the ground near the main road begging for money. Now, a blind beggar in this culture is not only a sinner and an unclean person, this person is what's called an expendable in the culture, an expendable. Someone of such minute value to society that they would be better off without them. That's what this means. The only role Bartimaeus has in this society was to be the recipient of a righteous person's spare change. See, giving alms or giving money to the poor was required by the law. So without poor people, a righteous person couldn't show how generous and giving they were. That's Bartimaeus' value in society, to prove someone else's righteousness by his unrighteousness. And he walked around with a name that would have constantly reminded him of that. Bartimaeus means son of unclean or son of filth. So try to put yourself in Bartimaeus' position. You're sitting by the road in utter darkness as you do day in and day out, waiting for someone to drop a coin or two into your hand. But today is different. Today there's a crowd, a big crowd. People have come out in droves from Jericho to meet Jesus and they, they join up with the multitude that's already walking with Jesus. But you don't know that. You can't see what's going on. So all you know is that there's a lot more people than usual. You can hear the noise of the crowd. You can feel the rumble of their feet on the ground as you sit. So Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus he asked someone near him what this all meant. What's going on? Who are all these people? And the crowd told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And immediately his heart starts racing. Jesus of Nazareth? The, the one everybody's been talking about? The one who he'd heard performs miracles? The one who he'd heard stood up in a synagogue and declared that he would be the one who would restore sight to the blind? This Jesus is here now? Passing in front of me? So in a split-second decision, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Had he decided in that moment that he wanted to be healed? Or was he just so desperate to see Jesus that he cried out the first thing that he could think of? But the crowd rebuked him for it. They told him to be silent. Shut up. Don't make us look bad. The question that leaves me asking is, would I have stopped crying out? In the face of a crowd that's trying to keep me silent, would I have stopped crying out for Jesus? I know I've kept silent in the face of a lot less than that. All, often all it takes to keep me quiet is the vague sense that the people I'm with don't really want me to talk about Jesus, don't really want me to bring him up. Or even the feeling that I, I don't want to be thought to be a foolish, I don't want to be thought to be stupid. It cost Bartimaeus a great deal to stand, or in this case, to sit against the crowd and continue calling out to Jesus. It costs him their scorn. It costs him their hatred and perhaps even his future income. But Bartimaeus doesn't care. He pays no attention to those around him. And instead, he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's the cry of a man desperate to see Jesus. The cry of a man who can't even stand up and run to him and fall down at his feet because he can't see him. And then Jesus stops. In the midst of a noisy crowd, the throngs of people, Jesus hears the cry of this man. And he commands the very crowd who had just been telling Bartimaeus to keep quiet, 
to bring him to him. Jesus extends special grace to this man. Special grace to the man that the crowd had just rejected. And Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He asks the question that I don't think many of us would have asked because the answer is so obvious, isn't it? It's so painful. And I think Jesus asks him this question because he wants to give Bartimaeus a chance to back out of asking for it. He wants to give Bartimaeus a chance to back out. And here's why. To be given the ability to see is going to cost Bartimaeus everything. He has no education, no training, no employment record, no marketable skills. If he's healed, self-support is going to be nearly impossible for him. It almost seems in his best interest to keep quiet and just to remain blind. It's safer. He can just continue begging. But Bartimaeus answers Jesus' question unequivocally. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And that's exactly what Jesus does for him, saying, your faith has made you well. And so Bartimaeus follows Jesus, glorifying God, and Luke records that all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, although it doesn't seem on the surface like this is a costly repentance for Bartimaeus when we first read this passage. It is. It costs him everything. It costs him his entire way in the world. But Bartimaeus knows that to see Jesus, to know Jesus, is so much greater than that. And so we come to Zacchaeus. We keep reading. Now, the text says two things by way of introduction about Zacchaeus. It says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and that he was rich. Now, tax collectors in this society are nothing like our modern CRA agents. Um, I don't know about you, but when I'm doing taxes at the end of the year, I don't feel like I'm being swindled or cheated out of my money. I don't feel like that. I think it's fair. Taxation in Roman society, however, was a lot different from that. There were two types of tax collection in a Roman society. There was direct taxation, which was collected once a year by a ruling Jewish council. And then there was indirect taxation. And this was also known as tax farming. Okay? Now this kind of tax collector is the kind that Zacchaeus is. And this system, this system of indirect taxation, is based on customs taxes. So say you are a trader and you need to move goods from one city to another. You go along a major route. And when you arrive at the next city, there will be a tax collector who will assess the value of your goods. And he will say, OK, you now need to pay 2% of that or 5% of that, whatever it might be. But this is a farmed out system, which means that someone who decides they want to be a tax collector needs to approach the government and they need to bid on that contract. So say I want to break into this system. I'm going to go to the government and I'm going to say, I want to be a tax collector and I'm going to bid that I'm going to pay $2 million in taxes this year to the government. If I'm the highest bidder, the government will say, yes, good, perfect. Now you pay us that $2 million right now. Okay? You pay it up front. And then over the course of the year, you get to go and tax people on their goods, and you can collect money, and you can re-earn that $2 million. Okay? But the only way that these people, these tax collectors, can make money is by assessing the goods for more than they're actually worth. So they go to this fellow who's come in with a, a cartload of, of manure. Sure, why not? Manure? Yeah, that'll work. And they say that manure is worth $5,000, is what they're thinking. It's actually worth $5,000. But instead, they say to the guy, uh, that's $10,000 worth of manure. So you need to pay me 2% of the 10,000, even though he knows it's only worth 5,000. 
So that's how they're making money. They're making money by overvaluing all of these goods. The only way they make money is by defrauding people. It's a horrible system. And you can start to see why tax collectors are so hated in this society. But in addition to being rich and a tax collector, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This word stature can be translated, you know, height. He was, he was short, okay? It can also mean something else. And I think translating it stature is helpful because it has kind of a double meaning. Not only is he short and can't see over the crowd, but he also has no respect in this culture. He's disdained. See, if this had been the rich young ruler who'd come forward and wanted to see Jesus, the crowd would have parted for him. But Zacchaeus is hated. Nobody's going to move aside for Zacchaeus to see Jesus. He might be rich, but he's disdained. And one scholar suggests that he even might have been afraid of the crowd. Anonymity happens in a crowd. Quick flash of a knife, a few screams, the crowd tramples. No one knows what happened. Zacchaeus is done. He's terrified. So he does the only thing he can think of to get a glimpse of Jesus. He, he decides to run ahead and to climb a tree. This seems logical. And it's here that we begin to see the kind of price that Zacchaeus is actually going to pay for seeing Jesus. Now, I love, I love the show Top Gear. Yeah, that show. Anybody seen that show, Top Gear? Yes, okay, there's a few of you who love that show. Now, if you've never watched it, I would like you to leave right now. You can listen to the sermon online later. This is more important. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But anyway, they do these epic races often across Europe. So they will pit some fancy expensive car against another form of transportation, whether it's you know, a train, a bus, plane, foot, whatever it might be. And there's three hosts of the show, Jeremy, Richard, and, and James. And what usually happens is Jeremy, the fellow in the middle, drives a really expensive car across Europe, and the other two like, ride on trains and buses and stuff. But they make it so that the races are always close. And they usually end up in some remote Swiss skiing village, and it comes down to the last few seconds. But James, the fellow on, on your, I'm not very good with right and left, right over there, he flat out refuses to run on television. It does not matter how close it gets in that Swiss village, he will not run on TV. Men of good stature, civilized men, dignified men, do not run in front of other people, okay? That's what's thought. Now, it's kind of a ridiculous illustration, but you, you get where I'm going with this. Civilized, dignified men do not run, and especially do not run in a Middle Eastern context. Perhaps you remember the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. When the, the father sees his son coming in that road, he runs out to his son. This is a deeply shameful act to run in this society. But Zacchaeus doesn't really seem to care. He just runs ahead, and he runs to a tree. And he decides he's going to climb that tree. And if you thought running was bad in this context, climbing a tree is even worse. Rich, powerful men do not climb trees at parades anywhere in the world. You can just imagine Donald Trump in New York trying to like scale a tree, his hair flapping in the wind. Um, it doesn't happen. But there's this, this great biblical commentator named uh, Kenneth Bailey who tells a story about John Baddo, who was the American ambassador under JFK to Cairo, to Egypt. And Bado decided one day, he was having an embassy garden party, that he would climb a tree in his backyard, his walled back garden, okay? Climb a tree to put some lights on the tree. It'll be nice, it'll be pretty. People will sip their tea and stuff in front of the lights. But word gets around somehow 
that John Battle climbed a tree in his backyard. And the president of Egypt, Nasser, is so kind of freaked out by this story, he can't even fathom it, that he ha he's having a public audience on television with Bado, and he asks him. He had to know, is this story actually true? Did you actually climb a tree? It's so incomprehensible to somebody in this culture that a grown man would climb a tree. He had to know, is this true? In other words, powerful men, especially in the Middle East, do not climb trees at all. But this is exactly what Zacchaeus does. He runs ahead, he climbs a tree, and he's doing this hoping that when Jesus has left Jericho and is passing by, some of the crowd will have dispersed, no one will have seen him do it, and he can see Jesus without being detected. But it doesn't work. When Jesus arrives at the tree that Zacchaeus is hiding in, he stops and he looks up at Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus did exactly that. He hurries, he comes down, and he received Jesus joyfully into his house. See, Zacchaeus was hoping to avoid the humiliation of having been seen running and seen climbing a tree. But when Jesus stops and he calls him down, Luke makes no mention of his humiliation. Simply that he received him joyfully. In fact, it's the crowd that ought to be humiliated. No doubt when Jesus stops under the tree, they, and they all caught sight of Zacchaeus, they expect that Jesus is going to side with them. He's going to side with the ones who get oppressed, as Jesus always does. No doubt they expect Jesus is going to launch into some kind of tirade about justice for Zacchaeus, his exploitation of the people, and demand that he go to Jerusalem, be purified, and that he stop his evil ways at once. This is what everybody's expecting. And isn't that what you want? I think that's what I would want. We would want Jesus to stand up for the cause of the oppressed, Stand up for the cause of the poor, the marginalized, those who have been crushed down by systemic injustice in this exploitive system. But Jesus doesn't behave according to those expectations. Instead of launching into a lengthy rebuke, he invites himself over for dinner. So the crowd grumbles and complains. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. But it's at dinner that we see the incredible power of God's grace to accomplish more than we could ever hope for in this situation. Zacchaeus stands up during the meal and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I will pay them back. I'll restore it fourfold. That's incredible. This man, he spent his life defrauding people, getting rich on the backs of others. After he encounters Jesus, he stands up and he gives away pretty much everything. And as though it's no big deal. He's pledged to give away half of his goods to the poor to pay back whatever he's defrauded 400%. Now think about that math. If he gives away 50% of what he owns, he's got 50% left. If what he, the money he's earned, if it came from defrauding people, any more than 13% of that money came from defrauding people, he can't pay them back. 13 times 4, you can do the math. Okay, I can't right now. I think it's 54, is that right? 52? Sure, that's great, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm here and not teaching math. Yeah. He can't do it. He's, he's bankrupt, essentially, in order to do this. And what's more than that, he can no longer do his job. If he says, I'm no longer going to defraud people, I'm going to pay back whatever I did in the past, the only way he can make money as a tax collector is by defrauding people. So his job is out the window. 
And Jesus' reaction is incredible. He says to everybody that's gathered in that room, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, as we wrap up and think a little bit about this text, I want to look at what this means for how we treat money as Christians. Two things I want to look at about that. First, make money a peripheral concern. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, money needs to be a peripheral concern in your life. For the rich young ruler last week, money was not peripheral. It was central to who he was, to his identity. So when Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, he can't do it. Money's too central. It's too big in his life. And then seeing the rich young ruler's devastation, Jesus says to the crowd, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, as Alistair pointed out last week, this is not a metaphor for something. This is a literal camel going through a literal needle. It doesn't make any sense. That's how difficult this is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But, but wait. Jesus has just said to Zacchaeus, who is a rich person, today salvation has come to this house. You are a son of Abraham. So he's entered the kingdom. So what's different in this case? Zacchaeus is the antithesis of the rich young ruler. He's the opposite of the rich young ruler. He's the fulfillment of it. He becomes the ideal rich ruler because money is not central in his life. What's central in both accounts today, both Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, is that they're willing to sacrifice everything, their entire way of life, their means of earning a living, all just to see Jesus, all just to go after Jesus but not the rich young ruler. His heart is wrong. He tries to fit Jesus into a heart that's already full of money. But both both Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, they seek Jesus with reckless abandon. So when given the opportunity to see him, to really see and to know Jesus, they think nothing of giving everything away in order to do that. Nothing else matters. Not status, not security, not what anybody else thinks, and certainly not money. I mean, this is Jesus. And when money is a peripheral issue, as it ought to be for Christians, it also frees us up to talk about money, to be open about money. It's such a guarded topic in our society. We don't want to know, you know, we don't want people to know how much we make or what we do with it or how we give it away, all that kind of stuff. Is it because we're embarrassed or shy? I mean, possibly, I think. Is it because we don't want to be held accountable for what we do with our money? I think that's part of it too. But I think it's also that as Christians, we still fall into the trap of believing that how much money we have or how little money we have in some way determines our worth. And it's such a lie. Our worth is defined by our having been made sons and daughters of God. Therefore, we can speak about money openly, honestly. We can treat it with the open hand that Jesus wants us to treat it with. Now, the second thing this passage tells us about money is that we need to handle it ethically. And that should be pretty obvious, I think. But how we make our money, what we do with our money, it matters. It matters a great deal. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that any of you were involved in Ponzi schemes or defrauding little old ladies of their pensions. Nothing like that. 
But we do need to be aware of the business practices of the places we work for, the places we invest in. Are they paying their laborers good wages? What are the working conditions like? Does this company perpetuate a cycle of poverty? These are the questions we need to be asking. And we as Christians need to be asking them. And more so, we need to be willing to act on the outcome of that question. It's not only the companies we work for, the companies we invest in, it's also the stuff we buy, too. What are we buying? Where is it made? What are the working conditions like for that? Should I just be buying that, that $5 hoodie that I love so much because it's cheap? I don't know. We also need to be honest in our dealing with the government, too. To avoid paying the government by being dishonest how we report on our income taxes, it's not okay as a follower of Jesus. If we've defrauded anyone, we need to make that right, too. And although money ought to be a peripheral concern in our lives compared with following Jesus, it doesn't mean that we can be lazy or unconcerned with what we do about it. So don't hear me saying that. Because it's a peripheral concern that it doesn't matter what we do with it. It does. We all need to repent in some way of the ways in which that we have used money well or poorly. And we need to make it right, too. We need to treat money in light of the costly love that Jesus gave for us. The love that costs Jesus everything. And we shouldn't be surprised then that to repent in the area of money, to reorient our spending and our saving around Jesus, is going to cost us a great deal. But it's okay. So I want to end with this parable that Jesus spoke. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think that is the kind of heart that we see in this text, the kind of heart that we see in Bartimaeus and in Zacchaeus, a heart that upon seeing Jesus, upon given the opportunity to be in relationship with him, to follow him, is willing to give everything, everything in order to do it.